This is episode number nine and part two with Clyde Kusatsu. Coming up. Sometimes you're cast because you are a good narrative. You can explain the exposition. You just have to accept the situation and be quietly confident in yourself and sure and just do the work, prepare as best you can, and that it will come. And what they're saying is, we want to see if there's an essence, not only that you're professional, but there is something there that they can work off of. And sometimes you do yourself a disservice by trying to be so technical. I really feel I've become a better person and also a better actor through recovery, and I can be more honest in my work as an actor. Hey there! Thank you so much for checking out this podcast. Are you a subscriber yet? If not, click that subscribe button so that you do not miss anything ahead. And if you have an extra moment, go ahead and rate and review the show in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. That will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all your comments and thank you so much for doing that. Hello and welcome to the Working Actor's Journey. My name is Nathan Agin, and this podcast is in-depth interviews with working actors, people who have been doing this and getting paid for it professionally for thirty, forty, fifty plus years. It is about finding out what took them from A to B. How did they get started? How do they actually work on material? What challenged them? What did they face early on in their career? What do they still get challenged by? And what have they learned from a lifetime of acting? That's what the goal and the purpose of this show is. And so I'm glad you are here. Now, a quick word about me, your host. Again, my name is Nathan Agin. I'm an actor. I studied theater at the University of Southern California. Done a lot of theater, a little bit of TV and film. I'm also an entrepreneur. Work for myself online. I'm a bit of a goofball, which maybe you'll hear on this show. And I'm also a bit of a Shakespeare nerd. Love studying it, reading it, performing it whenever I get the opportunity. Just so you know, there's going to be about ten episodes for the first season of this podcast. As a listener of the Working Actors Journey podcast, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to check them out. You can get a book that's an hour long or 15 hours long. Doesn't matter. Whatever you pick, it's free. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com/audible. I do have a recommendation with a fantastic narrator. If you want to hear an actor who is exceptional at this stuff, check this book out: *Patient Zero* by Jonathan Mayberry, read by Ray Porter. Ray is one of the greats, and he's been named Audible's Narrator of the Year. Now, don't get thrown by the cover. It's not a typical zombie book, which is not my kind of genre. It was the reviews that sold me. I mean, people really enjoyed the story, but thought that Ray was the true hero of this one. I mean, they loved him so much. Some people wished they could give him more than five stars. And when I started listening to this book, I honestly had to remind myself several times that it's just him reading the books and not a dozen different actors. He's that good, and I've been lucky enough to work with Ray on stage, and I know what a great talent he is. So here's actually a clip from Patient Zero, read by Ray Porter. Chapter One: 
When you have to kill the same terrorist twice in one week, then there's either something wrong with your skills or something wrong with your world. And there's nothing wrong with my skills. They came for me at the beach, nice and slick, two in front, one big cover man behind in a three-point close while I was reaching for my car door. Nothing flashy, just three big guys in off-the-rack gray all of them sweating in the Ocean City heat. The point man held up his hands in a no-problem gesture. It was a hot Saturday morning, and I was in swim trunks and a Hawaiian shirt with mermaids on it over a Tom Petty t-shirt, flip-flops and wayfarers. My piece was in a locked toolbox in the trunk with a trigger guard clamped on it. So you can choose this book, which clocks in at 14-plus hours and, for me, flew by, or choose any of the endless options that Audible offers. Could be a book, a newspaper, a magazine, or even a class. It is that easy. To download your free audiobook today, go to workingactorsjourney.com slash audible Again, that's workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial. Today on the show is part two of my marathon chat with Clyde Kusatsu. Clyde is an actor who, as of this month, February 2018, has been working in front of the camera for 45 years, and he is still booking roles. Now, heads up that this is a wide-ranging conversation across the years, and Clyde is a master storyteller with lots of great anecdotes and lessons learned. He can easily weave in history or politics. He's just quite a remarkable person, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show. I first connected with Clyde back in 2008 when I was helping out Ned Vaughn and Unite for Strength in the pre-merger days of SAG-AFTRA. Clyde and I actually lived near each other in L.A., and we've kept in touch a bit over the years. Clyde grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii, and attended Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, as a theater major. He has over 300 credits on IMDb, and just like Robert Pine in episode number one, Clyde has been on almost every iconic TV show from the 1970s to today, including both the original and newer versions of Hawaii Five-O. A quick look at his films include Midway, Turner and Hooch, In the Line of Fire, Paradise Road, American Pie, and Harold and Kumar Escape from Guantanamo Bay. He's also done an extensive amount of animated and voiceover roles. Fun facts, according to IMDb, he has played a judge in at least 14 different shows and a medical doctor in at least 24 different movies and shows. He's been very involved with SAG-AFTRA leadership, and in 2013, he became the first elected president of the newly merged union's Los Angeles local. He currently sits as the National Vice President Los Angeles for SAG-AFTRA. In today's episode, we talk about how he approaches playing different Asian ethnicities, what he's learned from casting directors, and we even get a more personal side of Clyde, talking about his challenge with alcohol and being nearly 24 years sober, the personal journey he went on with individual therapy, 
and we also chat about why he got involved with SAG after politics. Now, as I mentioned, this is part two of our conversation. Be sure to check out the previous episode for part one and even more with Clyde. So here we go with episode number nine. Please enjoy part two of my chat with Clyde Kusatsu. Clyde, you've been asked to play a number of different Asian ethnicities, and right. I'm, I'm wondering what goes into your research in terms of absorbing that culture so that you end up honoring it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, this is an interesting conundrum that you've touched on this subject, you know, because it's interesting that it always, when it comes to if you think about it, do you think any black actor is questioned as to, geez, is that a really authentic Guinea-Bissau accent, or is that a Botswana? Is that the right dialect? Uh, you know, along that line. Mm-hmm. Or uh, people get shocked to realize, no, Spanish is not just Spanish, that what you hear in the media is basically Mexican Spanish. is like American English, for example, or British English, you know, that kind of a thing. But when it comes to um, Asians in being cast and taking the roles, a lot of times the what has developed over the years is what I call the code word of uh, to screen it out is the, quote, authentic. Are you doing an authentic thing? And uh, when I got to L.A. in 71, it was like I'm an actor, I'm an Asian actor or whatever. And the first instance of it was perhaps in 75 when they were casting for uh, midway, and it wasn't blatantly said that you had to be Japanese, but there was some grumbling around that others weren't being seen because maybe they wanted to avoid the stereotypical thing that during the war, World War II, and all the propaganda films, uh, the Japanese were in the camps, right, in the West Coast. So it was uh, other Asian, mostly Chinese actors or people recruited from, say, the Chinese restaurants to be Japanese soldiers or sailors or whatever. And uh, there were very few really trained actors doing these roles. I mean, maybe just a few uh, learned to stand out, like Richard Liu and other people that became famous from th- those eras. Key Luke, but Key Luke was working before that in the Dr. Kildare series and everything. But at any rate, just to continue back on the Midway thing, I think a lot of it was also dictated by protocol because Japan is a big market and therefore they would listen to suggestions and criticism. But there was one um, Asian actor that was cast as a pilot and was on screen, uh, Jesse Dazan, who is Filipino-American, who has played other ethnicities aside from Filipino. And people forget, too, that even though the Philippines are a distinctly different archipelago, for 350 years it was Spanish, so the Spanish blood, the, the Chinese uh, diaspora hit Philippines. So there's Chinese, uh, you know, mixed in. So it's uh, all that's necessities. For example, what was really glaringly brought to light is when they had originally cast uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, it was not populated by what they went with later on. With all the, they said, oh, I hate a good idea. Let's get the, like Michelle Yao and current stars at the time in, in China, we did, did the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or whatever. What it was, was they had, it was problematic because 
they basically lost the Japan market because people in Japan would watch it going, well, that's a weird accent, or boy, she's not wearing a kimono <laughs> well, or she's not, wa-, you know, and that's a, that's a cultural thing. You have to do your research. And I learned that a long time ago. And I think it's because when I was with East West Players, we were, you know, banded together in 1972 to a unified thing. And we did Japanese plays, Chinese uh, children folk tales and everything like that. And, and Mako was at that time, you know, trained to Pasadena Playhouse, New York, private acting classes and everything. And his, his mindset was, no, you got to do the research, right? You have to, uh, what kind of, uh, if you're playing a Chinese, uh, at that time, uh, many of the Chinese immigrants to the United States were mainly from Guangdong province. So there was uh, Cantonese, it was the uh, dialect. And now it's been changed to now it's the current main form of Chinese is Mandarin. And that, that's a kind of a separation. And even in, say, if we're doing a Japanese play or something like that, it depended upon when it was done. I mean, where the, the play takes place. For example, the Japanese that is spoken today is not the Japanese that was spoken, say, in the Meiji era, around the turn of the century, then even after the Japanese after the war, post-war Japan. And like it's predicated and demonstrated in, say, when I did Paradise Road, what I had learned was that when you're playing uh, Japanese military, the form of Japanese spoken is more clipped and there's a different dialect and there was a different usage of the words. For example, you know, traditionally you'll say good morning is like, oh, I guess I must. But there's a certain usage of it where the more masculine, like if you go on a uh, Japanese movie set, you're greeted by us, just short greeting like us. And uh, it's those, those kind of little things. And so I, it was lucky that the technical advisor, my dialogue coach uh, was from Japan. He understood the whole thing. So he had a whole glossary of how it should be. And, and we would look at the script and he would just recalibrate what, the dialogue should be, which I had learned phonetically. But that being said, is that even when my early roles, say in Kung Fu, you know, I I would attempt to be true to the essence of the Chinese culture, for example, and listen and have patterns based on how it would be from that cultural end as opposed to, say, a Japanese end of it all. For example, in, in Midway, it was all all the dialogue, even the Japanese side was all in English, so we didn't have to go through the uh, subtitles and the whole thing. But if there's a difference in doing your English and how you carry yourself, which is, is a spatial thing, where uh, you move like an American. There's Westerns and, and Japanese move different ways in society. And it's the subtle differences of how you go through the crowd. If you want to, you know, in the Western world, we're very used to, to have our space around us, not invaded. And in the Far East, because there's so many people, one learns to contain oneself within one's own mindset so that you're not, uh, you can be 30 people in an elevator, <laughs> squashed in, and not feel like you're going to suffocate or anything like that. And if you wanted to get through a crowd, you just do a simple um, a, a hand motion in front of you going up and down instead of get out of the way and as if you're, you're parting water. And so when people see that, they, oh, they understand that you're just um, suggesting that you want to go through without having to say, I have to go through. 
it's it's those little clues. You know what it is? It's doing the research as to the cultural aspects of the society. It's it's how one deals with your speech patterns and, and how one occupies your space and how uh, and in many times everything is more contained. So that if you see some old Japanese films and everything that have to do with the military, it seems like everybody's just stiff sitting at the at the table. But in one example, if you're in a command uh, staff situation, at the head of the table is the emperor. Well, you're not supposed to look at the emperor. No one's supposed to, at that time, he was the, the living embodiment of the sun god. So to look at him would be disrespectful. So you always look straight ahead, and you just were almost sort of noncommittal. In the sense, you not register your feelings and your emotions. That's why it's all contained. But so an example is that in Midway shooting the Japanese thing, there's a whole different way that Mifune, if you watch it, occupies a space as opposed to say Jimmy Shigeta or Pat Morita as the various officers. And it, it's a subtle thing. It's how you wear the uniform. It's how you contain yourself. How you walk. And it it, it there's a different kind of a discipline about it. I don't know if I'm making sense as I'm telling you this, but <laughs> it's it's that it's that kind of thing. But that's what you do. That's what I was disciplined and trained to look at. It's it's no different than um, I'm sure uh, you know the Brit actors uh, because it, it is Great Britain or United Kingdom. People forget that it it's really an amalgam of various areas that were independent little kingdoms before. Wales, Leeds, and, and Birmingham, and all those areas, Umbria, Cumbria, Scotland, and everything like that. They're the Highlands, the Lowlands, the, the Midlands, and everything like that. There's a, each section is a different. So they have that skill set of having to adapt to that because the British actors will do repertory theater in different areas of England. And they're very acute. Their ear is very acute and attuned. says, oh, you do that very well. And if you watch a lot of the British dramas from Poldark, which is in Cornwall, to uh, various others that t- maybe take place in in uh, Edinburgh or or Northumbria uh, or Yorkshire. There's there's a whole different thing that they know. And but you know, uh, American audiences go, well, yeah, I need the subtitles. I can't understand what the hell they're saying. Yeah, no, it's definitely all making sense, and I and I can definitely connect that with you know either work I've had to do in the past or or work I've observed from other actors just you know needing to look at those things of like movement and and like you're saying dialect and and all that it, it absolutely makes sense so um no that was and it was some really cool examples you were able to share in terms of uh, your work experience and observing actors on set a, a question kind of tied to this is you know in the casting of asian actors you know over the years of your career have you felt mm-hmm. like there's been a shift from this idea of, oh, we need a Chinese actor or an Asian actor or a Japanese actor to just something where it's, well, we just need an actor and, oh, they might happen to be Asian. It's not necessarily a requirement, quote unquote, anymore. Have you felt like there's a, a shift, at least over your years uh, of working in, in film and TV? Well, I, you know, not, uh, not to... Uh be narcissistic about it or I, I think when I came to Los Angeles in 71 I was one of the few or at that time maybe one of the only ones that were went through a university training theater system that did summer stock I just played character roles uh, whether it was Carlino in Wait Until Dark the Italian gangster or right. 
various other kind of characters, Girl's Father in Fantastics or Jigger Cragen in Carousel. It gave me an ability to be adaptable so that I believe that when certain forces were saying, you know, let's try to be more, they didn't have the term diverse at the time, nor did they have the term inclusive, but perhaps maybe was open and more creative. And certain casting directors were came down to like, when it came to casting ND roles, a cop, a doctor, a teacher, a hospital administrator, down the line, non-descriptive, non-specific, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's sort of like, uh, yeah, why do all the cops have to be white, you know? Or they would say, just just show me actors. Or they would advocate, let's break this pattern up and let's bring some, quote, different actors to fill in the background. For example, what comes to my mind is that as I built that reputation amongst casting people that I was, I could deliver and I was a good actor, bottom line. So they would be, say, for the police, uh, part of the police squad, I would find myself reading with, oh, there's a Hispanic actor, there's a few white actors, there's a black actor. You know, it, all the colors of the rainbow that we used to chuckle were covered. In many respects, I would get cast as a cop in the squad questioning Cagney and Lacey, for example. And at one point, I think they still didn't change my name. I think I was still Gonzalez or something when it came down to the <laughs> cast list. But I would always feel prepared to do a debate and a, quote, defense of it, to make it rational, in that, he says, you know, hey, there are a lot of Korean kids who were adopted at certain points, you know, that uh, by maybe Callahan or O'Hara or whatever. And they retain, even though they have an Asian face, they retain their adoptive parents' surnames or family names, mm-hmm. you know, to, to make it logic or whatever. And I, I remember um, I was doing uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. And then I was talking to his brother and I said, you know, we're doing this film called Top Dog. I don't know. So, well, maybe there might be something in there. And then I wound up getting an offer to play the chief or the head of the, the department down, police department down there. And his name was Inspector Callahan. And so I get on the set and one of the other people in the crew said, Callahan? And the director, and his, who was his brother, uh, just looked at around and said, oh, you mean Callahan? <laughs> you know, and every, everybody broke up and it was, we kept it. We didn't bother to change it. I mean, sometimes they say, oh, no, no, we should change it because you're Japanese, right? And so they change it. And I wouldn't get into this whole debate because it was sort of like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, uh, different between Cornish and different between Lancashire or whatever like that. But that was the instance. And I think I was very fortunate to come into this town at a time where certain roles were being opened up. Like when uh, the, Joseph Wambaugh had a, uh, was a very prolific uh, pl- former policeman who wrote a series of uh, hit novels, you know, from uh, The New Centurions, The Choir Boys, all along that line. And in The Choir Boys, there was a, a character called Francis Taniguchi, who uh, was part of The Choir Boys crew, and he was a practical joker. When I got the meeting to meet Bob Aldrich, I was ready to read and everything. I didn't have to read any script or audition scene. Basically, the way Bob worked was he said, uh, so uh, tell me about yourself and uh, how do you see yourself fitting in the character? And I gave him my take on it, being he's the jokester and everything to relieve the intense pressure that everybody's under because you see all this, the worst of the worst in the world and in the city and on your beat. And uh, I wound up getting cast. 
And I've been very fortunate to be cast in those kind of roles that, oh, yeah, of course, you know, of course he's a doctor. Of, of course he's this, and he's, of course he's that. But you also have to accept the fact that part of it is you, sometimes you're cast because you are a good narrative. You can explain the exposition. Like with Midway, I'm the one going, well, they launch long-range bombers, B-25s, from da-da-da-da, they bomb Yokosuka, Yokosuka. You know, it was like I'm describing the scene, and I know very well that the camera will be on him taking it all in and his presence. It was one of the early lessons about film acting is it's not necessarily the amount of dialogue and words you have. It's whether you still have the camera time, and it's on you uh, shooting your reaction to it, and the audience gets what the reaction is. You know, actors forget that. It's not about being on stage and having the most lines. It's how sometimes what makes the plot move along and what makes in involvement of the audience is that they identify with a certain character. And, and that character listening gives more of a sense of the fear and the impending doom. For example, there was a, a movie called The Car. It was a universal picture. And there was an actress that was hired for a scene and she had no lines. But she was so into the scene that the editor found that he could cut to her with her reactions, and the audience got more the visceral sense of the impending fear that there's something out there that's menacing, which is this car. And it was one of those cases where she got a lot of screen time, right? Because they kept cutting to her. It's one of those, I think, in our business, it's it's not a linear thing of one, if you do this, you can graduate to two, you graduate to three. I think that our, our business is a kind that you really have to be that complete student, and not only a student of acting styles and techniques, but since this, the world has gone so global, uh, that you want to make sure that, this is back in the 70s or anything, that, that you wouldn't get complaints from overseas where certain markets, oh, that's terrible, that person, that's not really, a, where did they get these actors or whatever? He's not wearing that native garb right, or he's, oh, he's being very disrespectful of the way he he's wears the headpiece. It's not worn like that. And why is he moving like that? He's, he's like, he's not of our people. He's not of our tribe. So it encompasses reading the histories, getting an understanding of maybe what the geopolitical nature of the country was. What did they go through? Uh, I'm one of these guys that, he, I was, I'm a very curious fellow, even... In high school, I, I devoured a lot of histories, college as well, university as well. So I remember meeting, uh, must have been my junior year or senior year, I met someone uh, who was from uh, Yugoslavia. So I went, oh, are you Slovenian or, or Bosnia-Herzegovian or Montenegrin or uh, Serbian or Croatian or Kosovar? And they looked and said, you know about us? And just that little thing uh, was like, oh, it opens up a conversation, a dialogue. You know, Yugoslavia was Yugoslavia only after the, um, the First World War. Those kind of things enter into the politics. It even enters into how you move and how you behave and how you can also react, too. In just a simple thing of, here, here's somebody from this city. And the other character looks at you, what's wrong? Well, he's this or he's that. But it's, it informs you. That's all I'm saying. Sure. It informs you. Now, Clyde, I'm curious. Did you ever have an opportunity kind of like Toshiro Mufune or, or the writers or whatever, where, where you proactively started removing 
dialogue from a project you were working on because you knew it wasn't needed and you would still get that screen time because of your reactions? Was that ever, did you ever have anything like that? Yeah. Either saying, well, you know, I, I don't think I have to say it this way. Or a lot of times you can add the screen time by just having a natural, mm-hmm, or a nod, or, oh, so Disney, ha. Ah. That thing would mean that, oh, you're inclusive in the dialogue and everything, and maybe sometimes they'll cut to you because, oh, yeah, it just fits right into it. A lot of times, like, say, on Paradise Road, it was not written. You know, it just would say, the snake gestures this way, or Sergeant Tomiatsu says this, and I would talk to the, uh, my dialogue coach and the technical director and go, so, Tomo, what could I say here? And then you just fill it up and then you add the dialogue. I mean, because I learned that it's not necessarily what was written on the, on the page, but for my character in Paradise Road, uh, a lot of times there's cuts to my reaction as to seeing like the women being mistreated or ha- having, say, Kate Blanche's character being tortured and wanting to do something, but I can't because the commandant and the Kipetite captain are up on the balcony above us watching the whole thing, yet registering to them, I'm following, giving orders and preventing the private from bringing water to her character. At the same time, I looking at this corporal or private, and the audience knows that it, it pains me. Mm-hmm. And I'm sympathetic with what's going on, but I can't do anything about it. So a lot of it is when you inform yourself like that, when you understand how the character moves, how of that specific culture moves and everything, you can fill, you can be that person in that um, space. Because if you, if you kind of break things down, sometimes scenes are uh, where you just see the progression of, say, the march to camp. There's no dialogue, there's no talking, but each scene there is, why does the audience, oh, just people walking or, but that's the opportunity for the actors or the actor to be in his character as that character living, quote, and existing. So you have to, the actor himself has to inform himself how that character will walk, right? Right. How he will drink or how he, oh, looks at the food and, and oh, how, how he eats. Subtle things that it's almost instinctual. Mm-hmm. but it adds to uh, the character and, and adds to the, the palette and the color of the character. Well, yeah, and it, and it definitely sounds, in addition to all of that kind of character background work, it, it is really cool that, you know, you would avail yourself of the other people uh, on set, on the crew, who could help you with these choices or decisions that might need to be made or things that you would need to do so that it didn't feel like it was only up to you and you had to come up with all the answers that there were other people that you could uh, turn to, to, you know, advise you and, and make this as complete a character as possible as, as three dimensional as possible. Well, some of the, even the, some of the basics I remember early on in my career, you, you, you become friends, you, you, you befriend your, the camera crew, the sound people, wardrobe, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. I mean, it used to be a funny thing. I remember one, wardrobe uh, assistant or and, and the supervisor said you've done theater huh and i said yeah i said why he says, well theater trained actors when we come into the dressing room or your the individual dressing room they're the ones that have 
rehung their wardrobe on hangers <laughs> and are hanging. We don't have to go around just picking stuff off the floor and off the couch or this and that. Uh, we're not classically trained actors have a proclivity of just being slobs and just jumping and, and disrespectful in the sense that you have to understand that sometimes the people that are working with you are first on the set and last off the set. So anytime they have to look after you and pick up stuff is added time to their day. And it's just a, a matter of mutual respect and uh, kindness, uh, understanding it. Uh, but anyway, getting to this point, too, is that with the camera, especially the operators, at a certain point, uh, instead of stopping the progression where uh, break, what it's a technical thing. I would say, am I getting up too fast from the the chair to the table? Because at, you have the cameraman has to work with these two different levers. It's not about whip. I think today you can you can move a little bit more uh, freely uh, with the steady cam situation because it follows you. It's all balancing on different kinds of things. But when you're on the dolly itself, just to move that 35 millimeter camera, even the, the body itself of the camera. There's a whole gear kind of a thing. So you have to get up, not quickly in real time, but sort of kind of fake it and maybe do it half time and still make it natural so that the, you don't lose the camera, you don't lose yourself out of the shot, that the cameraman can follow you off. Say if there's a close-up behind the coffee table as you get off from the sofa, it comes up with you and follows you out of the scene to the next room, for example. And... That is also one of those techniques you have to learn to be able to accommodate the camera, walk in so that you don't throw a shadow on yourself, blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? It's, it's like it's a very technical thing at times mm-hmm. because you're, you're in a confined, you're in a box. You know, it's a lens box <laughs> right? type of thing. I mean, one of the early lessons, I think I, I mentioned it earlier, was that um, one of my first guest star roles, uh, Richard Lang was a director on it, and um, I learned a lot from Richard because every time I worked with Richard, I worked with him about four or five times, he would say, come take a look at the setup I have through mm-hmm. the uh, the lens and uh, say the camera position behind, say, a cabinet so that all you see is a cabinet door open and the camera's concentrating on a shelf. So he's basically seeing your reaction from your eyes. So he said, that's what I'm looking for. So forget about your hands. Don't get self-conscious about it. Just concentrate on that. And it's like, oh, okay. But, you know, you got to have a full skill set to begin to isolate yourself and to where to concentrate on. It, you know, on stage, you're there. The whole, you're the whole package. You're up on stage, so you have to be fully alive or whatever. But in a film situation, especially you're doing extreme tight close-ups, it's about the eyes, for example. Mm-hmm. It's about the breathing, you know, it's, and the eyes are really the truth tellers. If they're dull and like you're thinking some peas and carrots, you know, there's a joke. You can say, you can think to yourself peas and carrots and people will register like the Potemkin uh, <laughs> uh, thing where, you, you know, you put a steaming hot meal and a, a blank face. Oh, he's hungry or right. a, a lovely woman. Oh, he's desirous, that kind of a thing. But that's, that's the easy way out. Sure. You still have to, I, I believe, uh, be in it to register it. To um, that's why I, I, I'm ver- very respectful of certain actors. Now, it can be 
eye rolling for certain people who were like so kind of method actors like that, you know, but, um, and they're like, see how intense I am. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> but other than that, it's like, I can remember a, a lot of the British actors love to talk about the marathon man with, uh, Lawrence Olivier mm-hmm. and Dustin Hoffman sure. was for this intense scene. Spent three days not showering or shaving and not eating, like this whole thing. So he gets to do the scene. And then he was, you know, talking to Olivier. And then I think Olivier said, Well, try acting, dear boy. It's much easier. That's about technique. That's about being a professional actor. That's why you learn technique to recreate stuff that's not there. Maybe you, maybe you found it when you were in a, a rehearsal situation, but. And it's not coming, but then if you remember how it was, then you try to repeat it with technique. And sometimes the one that's recreated with technique is the one that they print. Mm-hmm. So, so who knows? That's why I say it's not one, two, three, four, that's, this is the way you do it and you guarantee. You never know where you are in your career that, boom, you go, oh, yeah. But then you're, that's 10 years down the road, you're going, oh, why didn't I do it then? Right. What I, the, the classic thing is, I, I was saying something, I'm finding more excitement in the sense of going out and having a good audition than I did years before. And when I was trying so hard, almost, almost, almost working too hard, whereas now I go, oh. You just have to accept the situation and be quietly confident in yourself and sure and just do the work, prepare as best you can, and that it will come to you instead of concentrating and holding the script and can I see the dialogue and everything like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You know, recently I had to, just a couple of days ago, do a self-tape, and I, 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 it's a hard thing for me to do to set up my iPhone or anything like that, so I found a service in uh, L.A. in the Valley called Cast in Hollywood in Studio City. I was look, going through, yeah, let's just do it three times, and I went, and the guy said, do you want to see it? So I went back and t- took a look at the thing, and I went, oh, why am I doing it this way? Why am I treating the camera as like it's just an observer? And I'm, I'm looking away to recreate the scene type of thing. Mm-hmm. When I should just look maybe just a slight left of camera or right of camera and set my scene there. Then they will be able to see when they see the tape, my eyes, my reaction, and my full face as I'm doing it. And I, I remembered what a casting director said to me about the self-tapes is, don't forget, we just want to see, you don't have to do it perfectly. We just want to see what you're capable of. We want to, and what they're saying is we want to see if there's an essence, not only that you're professional, but there is something there that they can work off of. And sometimes you do yourself a disservice by trying to be so technical. Sure. Uh, and, but I was, a, I was able to correct and self-direct myself. And in, in, in these um, self-tape uh, auditions, I think I also surrendered the fact, yeah, that's the new normal. That's the way they are casting these days because of time constraints and the distance production is from every place. And there's just the sheer volume of uh, commitments have to be filled, you know, and cast. So I just went, okay, if it's for me, for me, for, for a beginning actor, you know, 40 bucks is 40 bucks. It's a lot of bucks. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like, 
it's a, it's a cost of doing business and I can absorb it. But what I, the point also is I got excited because I empowered myself to take control of what I will show them. So therefore you have to act like the director. You have to be judiciously acting. You make two copies of the scene. So the guy who's reading with you knows specifically, Oh, that's my thing. Even if he reads terribly, as long as he gives you the cue, that's fine. And understanding where your lighting is and this and that and this and that. So you're doing the full package. And rather than being uh, resentful of that, just embrace it. That's just part of the new toolkit that we have to constantly uh, update ourselves. I mean, why do people keep on going to the hardware stores and the big places and buying new drill bits and new drills and new screwdrivers? Screwdriver is a screwdriver, right? But oh, no, and it's easier to use. So in essence, it's like being willing to accept that there are changes, you know, and I still feel blessed and grateful that I, I get to do this. Maybe not as much as I used to because it's uh, limited by the uh, the age reality of age and everything, but you go into it in a wiser mode and the thrill of it all is just to be not work as hard in the sense of if you have to create some, but the work is just allowing yourself to be you. It's like I booked a commercial on, on Friday, which I'll shoot next Friday, this, this coming Friday. And like I was the last one in the line at the callback. And they were waiting, they were pairing like black couple, uh, Hispanic couple. And the Asian gal that was supposed to make the other Asian couple didn't show. So at one point, there was a, a, a Caucasian woman, older Caucasian woman. And the guy said, well, why don't you come in and two of you do it. And then he was hemming and hawing in front of the director and trying to, and I said, oh, for God's sake, you're trying to be really diverse and have the American scene. This is what's happening. And everybody laughed right? The, the tension was broken up. And I think it was that kind of looseness. And I wound up doing it just once. And then a few hours later, I get the call saying, uh, they want to put you on a veil. <laughs> and then later on, they said, okay, you booked it. And that wouldn't have happened before because I would be so intense trying to get that. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you just have to be confident, in being who you are so that you fill that space, they feel confident that you also reflect what they'd like to see. Maybe they don't know what they want to see, but oh, here's a guy who knows what they're doing. We don't have, we don't have to work as hard to make it happen, which is also an aspect of, from a director's point of view. I remember uh, talking to Bob Aldridge years ago. He says, look, I, I know the guy's a son of a bitch, but you know what? He, plays son of a bitch well. So I will cast him as a son of a bitch and I don't have to bother making him a son of a bitch. <laughs> and I can concentrate on other stuff. I went, oh, kind of makes sense, right? And that's why you see certain actors play the same kind of character. Film after film, they get typecast, I suppose, because mm-hmm. they know what they'll get. You know, They f- fulfill part of the bargain in creating the, this ensemble piece, so to speak. Oh yeah, he plays villains really well. And you never know, because sometimes the nicest guys are the sons of the bitches, and the most evil, menacing guys are the sweetest guys you could ever work with. So there you go. Right. Now, Clyde, <laughs> I, want to, yeah. um, I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk a little bit about personal challenges and, and things like that, because we all have them. We all you know, have obstacles and things like that that we need to go through. And yeah. you 
you had shared with me previously that you've been sober for a number of years. How many years is it now? Um, 23 years and August 4th of this year, I'll have 24 years. Well, congrats. And thank you um, very much. Yeah. And so what I'm, what I'm curious about is first, when did you realize that that was an issue? And, and then also what helped you gain more control in your life with that? Well, the, first of all, is gain control. That's, that's a misnomer. Okay. Um, you know, because everyone is trying to think you have to have control. And when you try to have to have control, that's why you, you search for something other than yourself that makes you feel like you have control. But growing up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the, the culture itself, the convivial culture itself was, it was just part and parcel of the system. You know, after you shoot, you have a rap party, you have, uh, you're invited by the director and the table is filled with all kinds of liquor and everything. And you just have to pace yourself. And, um, the whole idea is like, even if you look at the films, if you're feeling bad or you're, 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 uh, grieving, you know, you go to the bar and order a stiff drink or two or three, or if it gets really worse, you're just constantly there and everybody's concerned. But in essence, I think what really brought it, I felt I had, I must have felt a problem, but when you look back and you go, okay, I have to go to this rap party or I have to go to this social event, but I don't want them to feel that um, I'm always going to have to have a drink in my hand. So I'll have a couple of shots before I go, mm. you know, and then you're going and oh, but I always have to have something in my hand because it's almost like a prop. But it really came to pass is that in a familiar situation and uh, my older boy was uh, out of control, getting into trouble and everything. And uh, we had to throw him into rehab when he was 13. And going through those family sessions and uh, therapy, group therapy sessions and educational meetings and, and stuff that on the whiteboard or the blackboard, they'd have the, the, the basics of the core family and uh, the good child, the bad child, the parents, where you stand and everything. And I realized I began to identify that if anything's going to, I was one of those people. And I, I uh, privately talked to one of the, the counselors and I said, uh, you know, I may, may have an issue. And she said, well, come here Saturday. And, and I met her that Saturday and she just gave me a big book. And that's all she did, which then started this whole journey, so to speak. So long story short, that for about three years, my older boy, he's sober now. He's been sober 22 years now. Mm. He's coming up on 23. The biggest resentment he had was, yeah, I went to rehab and my dad came out sober. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing was, is that I believe it played an important part in preserving my opportunity to continue to work as an actor. Because mm -hmm. at 69, people, their mouths drop when I say I'm 69, because I don't present myself at 69. And the other thing people say to me is just like, Jesus, don't you ever age? You still look <laughs> like you did before. Of course, sometimes I'm looking at the mirror going, who is that old guy? But I have to take a look at it and go, yeah, it's, sometimes it's pretty hard for another person's eye to go, and so I wind up getting called in for the middle-aged parts too, like 40s and 50s. And then if I am called in, say, for senior roles, like for grandpas and everything, 
for a commercial and all the dudes are there with the white hair, snow white hair. I'm going, uh, they're going to get it because <laughs> I don't present like that. But I can present like a grandparent, though, in my way of dealing with their kids because that's who I am, right? I, have, I, I don't have grandchildren, but I've been through the process of, of raising a family. So there's a whole different thing. You, you, don't, you can't fake it. You can't pretend. You are. You just be. Be the dad. Be the loving, showing the love. And love is not necessarily, I love you, I love you. It's like even just the, the, the kind of way you, you touch your kid or just play with the kid and are natural and real with the kid. You know? uh, but anyway, uh, getting back to it is that it was a full course on learning how to surrender, acceptance, building a foundation on trust within yourself, and that we don't have to be so hard on oneself, but being human is to make mistakes. And looking back, what a lot of people in our family situation would have been, oh my God, look at them, how terrible it is. That wasn't, that was, we consider, my wife and I consider it, that was the gift that was given us. It was a gift to uh, reconnect with everyone, to reconnect with yourself, for example. And build from there, which a lot of times is not only a 12 step recovery program. It was also, I will say this, that what also helped me is, um, therapy, individual therapy. Mm -hmm. And really there's a phrase called uncover and discover, and then not to be the victim and not to play the, not to play the blame game. Uh, but also to take responsibility, learning to do all those aspects of it all, not searching for a reason why you fail, but saying, where did, where did I not attend to a certain point? You didn't attend to a certain point because you didn't put in the time to study and prepare. Boom, that's the bottom line. You want to get the job next time? Then prepare. Don't wing it. You know, Do the prep work. And the prep work doesn't necessarily have to be long hours studying and studying and studying. It's just you study. You study, and by the time you get to that room, you're familiar with it. Also, don't screw yourself by chucking the script completely. Keep it in your hands like a prop. It shows that, yes, even though you know it, you're not having to search for it, and your, uh, what do you call it, your prime directive is not to get every word straight. It's just to keep it going. And also to feel confident enough to go, uh, the first, you know, used to, I used to think that, oh, you can't stop because that means you failed. Now I've learned for several years now to, if I know that I screwed it up in the second or third line, and instead of plowing through the whole thing is to say, oh, can we do it again? Because it shows them that you're confident in yourself enough to know that you're self-directing it and stopping it. And it gives you a pause to gather your thoughts. Maybe it's microseconds, but then it's sort of like first off the gate, you just got that, you warm up, you, that practice run. Get back, you're familiar with it, and then you start going and you don't have that glitch anymore. But then they see, oh, there has been an improvement, has there? It's a micro thing. Within those two, three minutes, you're in that room. But sometimes life changes happen in a moment. The difference between a hero and a coward is that second when the person is impelled to take action. So I think in recovery for me, it's what's always carried me through for these past 23 years it's about the principle and not the personality. Personality is like ego, right? Principleness is like doing your job, being disciplined. In that respect, I really feel I've become a better 
person and also a better actor through recovery. And I can be more honest in my work as an actor. And the fear factor, the fear of being rejected, the fear of failure is one that all artists carry within themselves, whether they like to admit it or not. And if you can face the fear and accept that there is fear, it doesn't govern you. It's it's like what seems simple is you, but like the song says, you you uh, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. And that's in essence what we do every morning. What's the new day going to be? And so for me, that's the gift. And I think that's allowed me to continue to uh, work in my uh, my career and appreciate the moments and just bring to the set not problems, but uh, the willingness to work yeah. and work towards a project without having to fake it, so to speak. Yeah. You know. Very, very cool. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing all of that, you know, with me and with us. I want to ask a little bit about your involvement with SAG-AFTRA. And I know there's probably hours worth of content we could talk about in terms of everything you're doing with them. Since you're currently the national vice president for SAG-AFTRA, what are you, you know, what's maybe one or two things that you're are kind of challenged or what are some of the challenges that you're facing? And what are one or two things that you are excited about? Um, well, you know, I've been involved uh, with uh, the union prior to merger with originally with SAG in 2008. And I, I got involved because it looked like the rivalry between the two legacy unions was at a detriment to the actor themselves and, and not keeping pace with the progress and the evolvingness of the industry itself. It was not matching the needs of the new business model. And the first step to regain the strength of the union and not make it like a, a laughing stock of a soap opera, this is what's happening, these crazy actors, was to think in more terms of business in dealing with business, just as even the studio executives and network executives have learned to adapt and deal with business because they're all owned by multinational corporations now. And they're just but silos of what they originally were. And instead of the long view, it's about quarterly profits and revenue projections and assets and da-da-da and content. Anyway, the first step was to get it, it merged, and we merged it, and it was very good. And in any political process, the people you have to push up against are resentful of the fact. And for some, it's very hard for them to understand that there's no going back in our business, you know? I mean, certain niche things like uh, vinyl LPs are making a slight comeback, but that section is a sliver of the pie. And film is great, and there will be always film, but the cost factors makes efficiencies of going digital much more amenable to the bottom line. So platforms are changing. It's not broadcast anymore. It's streaming uh, internet product from Netflix is the big kahuna, then followed by Amazon, followed by Hulu. And it's about eyeballs. It's about getting the product out there. And these days, it's also about fighting piracy and people stealing and accepting the point that certain price points and what were business models and what people were getting and making are no longer sustainable in the new economy. And it is truly 
pennies that are 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 uh, guiding the business. We have to adapt to that, and the contracts have to adapt to that, and the thinking for the actor has to adapt to that. So it's one of those things that part of the thing that keeps me in service and of purpose is that I would like to see that our union, SAG-AFTRA, stay relevant. And we have the potential because we are the largest entertainment union in the country. In fact, the other acting unions around the world look to SAG-AFTRA as the end, what they want, what we have, or working towards keeping. They want that because the artists around the world are being challenged. And sometimes it's almost like a plantation society where they're being, working conditions are horrible. The uh, risk reward are almost subservient. So it's important that everyone is honored. You know, even in the YouTube world and the, the challenges of the people that have their individual networks or their channels or whatever. And then you've got a few superstars like that have millions of subscribers and everything. But sometimes they're kind of locked into their thing. I mean, they can only be who they are. If they wanted to venture beyond their parameters, they may lose their, their fan base. And if they lose their fan base, they lose their monetization cred, and they're not going to get the sponsorship dollars or whatever that they would like to have. So it's almost like a reversion back to the old studio system where certain people were chafing at the bit, you know. The risk-reward is, is more heightened these days because of uh, the, the quickly changing patterns. I mean, <clears throat> retailers have to adapt. Their, the, you know, the Amazon effect is affecting retailers across the world in, in our country where more people are going to, to shop via Amazon than going to the mall. And so even the mall societies have to change, and certain unproductive uh, malls are being readapted to like residential and uh, minor retail and creating of many uh, townships in a way within these uh, mall complexes and everything, which is answering the housing problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So life will always keep moving, and and the point being is that. Um, as a national, uh, I'm the national vice president for Los Angeles. There's a national vice president of New York, national uh, vice president for performers, broadcasting. We're part of uh, the uh, leadership group and working with Gabrielle Carteris, who's the, the president of the uh, SAG-AFTRA, the national union, Rebecca Damon, who's the executive vice president. And it's, it's about, as leaders, offering guidance to the staff as, and representing the, the membership and working towards pushing our union and creating a union for the 21st century. The need is still there, but the models for surviving and maintaining have kind of changed now. I mean, the need for it is like, for example, recently it was an overwhelming vote at the um, LA Times to go union for their staff, which they did. They were successful. It's about seeing that people are not exploited by the, the owners who are part of the 1%. You know, they're, they're the ones. And, and uh, the workers are asked to take reductions in health and, and pension. And more so these days where pension and health benefits are really unreachable for a majority of the people. And it's important that we also keep those aspects for our workers in the content producing performers, you know, because now SAG-AFTRA is much more, much more than 
uh, actor performers. It's it's about people who are the singers, the voiceover artists, it's the announcers, the broadcasters, it's the dancers, the singers, it's puppeteers. My God! And now a growth field is uh, performance capture, who really don't have a contract yet and are uh, exploited a lot. Except if you're a top guy like Andy Serkis, then no, you you can you can command top dollar. But those are the new fields where it's not the. You know, there was one one thing where the producer said, "Well, no, no, they're really not actors because uh, it's all special effects and it's really animation." Well, technology has gotten to the point where if you see some of the latest videos on making of War of the Planet of the Apes, and you see that. Andy Serkis has this mobile apparatus on him that's able to capture all his uh, emotions, his body movements and everything. And then they layer in the, uh, the images of the apes or whatever into it, or snork in uh, The Last Jedi. Whereas before, you'd have to have all these animators painting or doing whatever they did. So it's getting to the point where it's becoming more feasible and less costly in a way because you don't have to have armies of animators and painters and colorists and everything like that. But if you look at where the work is being done, you know, musicians are being challenged, the professional musicians that lay in the scores, because they'll say, well, we can get the, uh, the National um, Symphony of Bulgaria, uh, Sofia, to, to do the score, or we can go to the Czech Republic, or we can go to the London Philharmonic, and get just as good a thing, you know, done, laid tracks, laid down. So it's a constant effort and lift to ensure that the union will survive and become stronger. And also that it will be there as it was for me when I started out and affording me a retirement and, and uh, health coverage and pension coverage. And we want, in many respects, that is one of the main things that we maintain as a important goal whenever we have our contract negotiations, you know. And a lot of times, we, you know, the, the latest thing is about uh, parity between male actors and actresses, directors, everyone on the line. But in essence, uh, SAG-AFTRA has maintained a parity because we negotiate the minimums. Every three years, the increase of the minimums and maintaining that the, there are minimums. The minimums are the foundation of the base where people can work off of the managers and everything. Say, no, we want X and X percentage above the minimum and everything gives them a guide. But if you think about it, the minimums have parity because the minimums are for everyone. It doesn't discriminate in gender or race. It's just there. They are the set minimum. So if you look at it that way, we've been a pioneer in parity for remuneration and for a day's labor. So it is very, I would say, more so these days, purposeful to be engaged in that kind of work as well. I mean, the idea, I mean, people when people talk about retirement, I know you can paint or do whatever. I mean, that's to me, that's sort of like watching it dry, the paint, that is, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, working towards a broader goal for the care and safety and increasing protections for the workers, for the actors. And bottom line that we are not exploited as we were before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, back in people say, well, geez, wouldn't it be not, wasn't that nice when Universal was one of the last of the contract systems? I said, well, this may not be an accurate figure, but 
you know, an average, uh, a universal contract player got like, say, 250 a week. This is back in the 70s. But if you were James Brolin as a universal contractor, then winds up in doing Marcus Welby, MD, then gets loaned out to work with Richard Benjamin on Westworld, which becomes a huge hit. And maybe he was getting $7,500 a week doing that movie. He was still being paid only 250 a week or 500 a week as whatever his universal contract was because his, his studio loaned him out and they were pocketing the difference. Mm. That's the difference. Mm. You know, so now it's more people are getting what they feel that they're worth. And in any system, that's what it is. Um, and a lot of times what now, what has suffered in the past was that all the money went for the top star and it's been a reversion to the everyone's getting minimum or favored nations minimum. And there have been cases where actors will say, well, why don't you just take a million off of my and then spread it out so that you can get some good actors and which they've done. But why does it have to come out from the artist himself? Sure. When it, could e when it easily can come out of uh, the overall budget itself, too. Um, it's about squeezing the dollars and everything like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does sound like, uh, it's some extraordinary work that, uh, the leadership at SAG-AFTRA is doing and in very tumultuous and changing times and, and certainly something that'll, that'll keep you busy. Uh, even if you weren't <laughs> working all the time, you, I'm sure you could be <laughs> kept busy just by this. So, uh, no, uh, that's, it's really great to hear all that you guys are doing there. Well, that, and then also, you know, what's very important is that, we have a lot of high-profile people, and we work hard to dispel the notion that SAG-AFTRA is just a bunch of rich actors looking for uh, an easy way out. No, it's not. The majority of SAG-AFTRA members are just working stiff like everybody else, trying to make their way. And it's all part, you know, we're no different than makeup artists, grips, drivers, wardrobe personnel, seamstresses, etc. down the line office personnel, and it's all part of the machine and the engine that producing content for, uh, you know, there's now, there'll probably be close to 500 episodic TV series being produced this year into the next year. Wow. Which is a lot. Yeah. You know, but that amount, also the dynamics change. It's not 22 to 26 episodes, which is a broadcast model. It's now getting to the point where it's between it's under 13, 13 may be a max order, 10, 10 like AMC has with Better Call Saul, or eight for certain HBO series. So it's, it's the changing dynamic and the models are changing. So everything has to be adaptable to that. And it's not one size fits all mm -hmm. type of thing. So it is a, a challenge, it is an effort, it is work. And um, our current president, Gabrielle Carteris is doing a magnificent job being able to also um, not only lead in that point, but also having reach outs because she's become this face of our union in especially that uh, Time's Up movement. Uh, I mean, she went up to last year, she went up to Sacramento to lobby for the IMDB thing of just taking off the age on that. And people go, well, what's what's the big deal? Well, for the big deal is for certain actresses and actors the publishing of the age diminishes work opportunities. Sure. And it's like, in some way that it seems superfluous, it's not. 
it's it's a bread and butter issue for performers, and it's for directors as well, and it's for a lot of writers. At a certain age point, you know, there's a, the fallacy is that, oh no, he's he's not employable, and you go really? So you're going to hire the young gun who has to be taught how to do it again? It's like a continual invention, reinvention of the wheel. And so it's 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 those things that seem superfluous to other people. Ageism is a thing that now is permeating throughout society in our country, and it's affecting whether people like it or not as to your your higher ability and uh, your your survivability in, in a long run uh, in maintaining a career. You know, the interesting thing is people used to say to me back in the 70s, well, why do you, it's so insecure, you know, uh, to be an actor. You know, that was when the model was 30 years in, or 50 years in a gold watch. Well, that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about the subtle changes, isn't it interesting that everybody has to take these courses of how to update your resume? Take a course of how to present yourself when going for a job interview, how to dress yourself so you can still be with it, even in Silicon Valley, that whole thing. So all the elements that the uh, actor had to deal with years ago, now the general public is having to deal with. Well, very, very cool. Uh, I mean, I appreciate all the info and, and insights you have. Uh, it's uh, very cool to hear about somebody who really knows what's going on with the union. Oh, you're welcome. But at this point in your career, looking back, what would you say are, are the qualities or attributes or reasons do you believe are why you work so much or have worked so much? I mean, you know, just as an example, there you have nearly 300 credits on IMDb, and that's not even everything. So even in a period of 40, 45 years, that's still a lot of work. And and why do you think you have worked so much? You know, sometimes I think it got to the point where when I was younger, it was like, how many, how many gigs did I book this year as, as a gauge to the work? And truthfully, it changed when you become a, a father and you have responsibilities and you've got issues like pension and health, health care plan. Um, you've got tuition to pay for the kids. You've got the monthly mortgage. You've got the bills to pay each month. So then at a certain point, I, I remember one time I was sort of like living that performer or the actor's life of doing shows at, at the theater and maybe a good role that comes once in a while. And then my wife is doing the work. And at one point she said, you know, I'm taking the kid down to the nursery daycare down the street. It's seven o'clock in the morning. And I'm looking at you. You're sleeping. And I wanted to strangle you. And you're not doing this job because it's one day because it's a commercial? And really? And so it's like real life enters in, and you wind up going, okay, um, what is the primary purpose? The primary purpose is to function, is to provide food and shelter over your head, a roof over your head, and do it the best you can. And that also means subconsciously and consciously staying out of your head and yourself going, nothing's too far or too above me or too below me not to consider doing, which goes back to 85, talking to those Brit actors who said, Clyde, we're actors. We're paid to work, whether it's a 
TV commercial, whether it's a radio spot, whether it's a voiceover, whether it's two weeks in Liverpool and repertory or, you know, a film on this and that or a feature or whatever, you just work. You just keep on working. And I think, if anything, that's probably the ethos I've always followed about being willing to do the work, being willing to get the work, being willing to adapt to the new new that's coming along and to, to work on staying out of any perceived slice of quote, air quote, don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done kind of thing? And it's to be kind of in that state of humility, yet preparedness. I can remember um, a few years ago on NCIS, and Mark Harmon is a terrific leader and a terrific uh, purveyor of uh, a kind of uh, discipline. Having been a quarterback like at UCLA and in the pros for a while, he knows that he's only good as the team around him that supports him. And um, what he does on that show, he's, he goes to everyone's IMDB and prints it out so that a friend of mine who's the exec producer said he was at that time, Michael Weatherly was, was on the show and he showed Weatherly my printout of the IMDB. It was like a sheaf of papers, right? <laughs> and Michael Weatherly went, holy shit. And in a way, it's sort of like a record to look at, not as something to trumpet, but as something to look back and for a moment go, yeah, what are you talking about that you haven't had the chances or anything? Look at, look at the evidence. Um, and you're right. A lot of times, I mean, I have a separate list of saying there are projects that I did that IMDb, IMDb won't recognize because they can't find it in the record. You know, a pilot that was done for CBS that Linda Bloodworth created back in the 70s that they can't find any record of. Or other um, situations, uh, you know, it's just willingness to be part of it. It's like I remember there was several years ago there was a project called uh, 12 Miles of Bad Road, a uh, Linda Bloodworth Thomason's um, production for HBO with uh, Lily Tomlin. And uh, I was asked to play Lily's uh, valet. And basically, there was no line in the first episode. And maybe there was a line in the second episode. But he was a constant presence. So you really had to be there. And I remember Linda taking a moment and just saying, and we're very honored and uh, pleased to have you know, Clyde Kusatsu, who's had all this work, to join us. And it was one of those moments where, hey, I'll be here. I, I mean, it's almost like the line from West Wing, right? I serve at the pleasure of the president. It's, I serve at the pleasure of the project. It's, good, it's always good to be in front of that camera or there. And, and these days, it's interesting, from the makeup to the wardrobe people or whatever, they find out who's on the guest list and they go to that person's IMDB. And now it's sort of like you have a starting point to have a conversation, you know? And a lot of times there's a lot of respect there. And uh, I look at it as it's, it's become a real tool, uh, an important tool for an actor to have. Not only the fact that it's just a record of, quote, I've been here or I am here. Because the world is so moves at such a fast pace and everything, you don't have to remind people who you are. You just say, hey, check it out, or, and this and that, and after they do, they go, oh, okay. 
And therefore, you take one element of trying to navigate the rivers and, and the rocks, and it, it's just very helpful. And I don't think there's any secret sauce there. I don't think that there's, um, I don't live or die by it, but at the same time, in a way, it's like a good way of keeping record. It's not necessarily how many red carpets you've been on, but it's, it's a definitive way of, of keeping score for oneself when one needs to be reassured that, yeah, I have been here, and yeah, this has been worth it. And I go, yeah, it is, because, you know, after 45 years, I'm at that age range where there are more yesterdays than there are tomorrows. Well, Clyde, this has just been a really fantastic conversation. I really appreciate how much you've shared. I mean, it's clear that there's, yeah, there's just so much more to your career, but I appreciate how, um, yeah, you've been just a great storyteller and I appreciate how much you've been sharing today. It's just been a lot of fun to get to know you better and uh, hear more about your history and journey. And so I really appreciate your time. Thanks again for talking so much or not for talking so much. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, (laughs) I get it. Thank you again for your time is what uh, was what I meant to say and appreciate it all. And, and thanks so much, Clyde. Oh, you know, you're very welcome, Nathan. And thank you for considering me and thinking of me. Appreciate it. Hey, guys, it's Nathan here one more time. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe to the show so you don't miss anything. And if you can take a minute to rate and review this in iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, that will help others find out about the show. I appreciate all comments and thank you very much for doing that. Be sure to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash podcast for the show notes and any links from today's episode. You can also follow the show at WA Journey on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to connect and let us know what did you enjoy from the show. Don't forget to visit workingactorsjourney.com slash audible for your free audiobook and 30-day trial from Audible. Thank you again to today's guest. I really appreciate and value all the people that contribute their time to making this show possible. I'm Nathan Agan, and thanks for listening.